This is New Hampshire Headlines in WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirst at nhtalkradio.com to get more from all of our great programming over here at the station. Uh, this show features reporters in the state of New Hampshire, and this week I'm excited to be joined again by senior reporter Anne-Marie Timmons over at the New Hampshire Bulletin, newhampshirebulletin.com to get more from them. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. All right, so you have a story coming out early next week that I want to be sure to hit on. Super interesting. Um, people living who have disabilities, they're, it's always difficult to find the best course of treatment, whether it's at home or facility or anything like that. But obviously at home is the best option that many people want if there's resources available. So what's going on with us? It's a program called Choices for Independence, and it really is about giving people choice for independence. So when you are... Um, have a health injury or a condition that you could be in a nursing home for. For some people, that is the right place when that is where they want to be. Some people want to stay home. And so this Choices for Independence program provides really basic services, like someone comes in and maybe helps with cooking or bathing or laundry or helps you transfer you know, from a wheelchair into bed safely. And with those services, they can live at home. And so we rarely seem to be able to get out of the office to do our reporting. We're at the State House too much. Um, but I was able to get out, and I worked on this for several weeks. I visited three people who are using the services. Um, and I just will quickly share the story of one man who lives in Nashua. When he was in his late 40s, he was mowing his aunt's lawn, stepped into a hole, upset a ground hornet's nest, got stung 200 times, lost vision in one eye, and then was in a car accident, lost one leg. His blindness spread to his other eye, and then he developed an infection and had to have his other leg amputated. That man lives at home with his 80, and his 81-year-old fiance visits quite often. He gets about 12 hours of help a week with laundry and you know his mail because he can't read it. Very, very basic things. And he just has such a wonderful life. He has a life he wants, and he's able to live there. So the reason I'm writing about this right now is the state budget um, right now contains $134 million, um, an increase of $134 million in Medicaid rates, which funds these kinds of services. If that fails, these providers say we just can't afford to do it. As it is, they only get enough to pay people about $13 an hour to do this work. And that's with fundraising to make up the shortfall and what it gets from the state. So it was a it was an uplifting story that maybe some people would think would be pretty sad, but the, just their joy of life was so contagious. Yeah, there's a huge, I mean, there's been countless studies about the importance of having family and connections later years in life. And that mm -hmm. if you don't have that, the the, the, the the chances of them living like into their 80s and 90s are exceedingly mm -hmm. low. So mm -hmm. to have that capability is, is super important for lifestyle, but just uh, mental health is just so important mm -hmm. to something like that. And just your physical health. I think for some people that would be a place they might quickly decline if they were cut off from those services. And I think what struck me is if you think this program is for others, you know, these people I talked to, Two of them landed there because of a car accident or a freak accident. That really can happen to any of us. And one of the um, men I talked with has Parkinson's. Um, th that can really touch all of us. There's not some group of people who might need these services and a group who won't. Um, and so I think the advocates 
did a good job of helping people like me and lawmakers understand who's behind these Medicaid dollars. Um, and as a storyteller, you get people's attention by telling people's stories. So it was a really great experience. That's coming. Yeah, in. that's that's an incredible story that, that he's managed to survive all these things, but you still got a fiance. He's still kicking. He's still wanting to make it work at home. I mean, it, it, it's absolutely incredible. He's and he um, he has never seen with his eyes his fiance, but he calls her bubbles because she's so effervescent. That's what he takes away, and I would say that describes him as well. I mean, he's just a remarkable, funny, funny, lovely person. Um, it's these kind of stories where you want to go back and see everyone you've interviewed and go play cribbage with them or watch a movie or something. They're just really delightful experience. And so the, the, the cost for these sorts of things, it, it's primarily through Medicaid. Is, what, is that what you're saying? For these, if you're income eligible, and it costs about, on average, about $19,000 a year. The average person has about $19,000 a year in services and Medicaid. If they're in a nursing home, an average cost is sixty dollars to $100,000 a year. So the advocates will say, if we can't get you on the it's humane argument, let's try the fiscal argument. You know, yeah. it's, they try both. Um, so it's, it's quite a, a bit of savings. Um, and we're an aging state. Are we going to continue to prioritize? And we put, we're 12th in the nation for the amount of money we put in these CFI services versus nursing homes when it comes to long-term Medicaid dollars. So we're 12th, we're the lowest in New England. So I think the hope is that we will start to equally prioritize these options for people as they age or they need additional care. It's a logistics question also. I mean, where where are we going to put everybody as they as they age and are unable to take care of themselves necessarily full time? Like we don't have enough beds and rooms and mm -hmm. like we've got there's sure there's a bunch of places here in Concord, there's some places in Manchester and some other outlying areas and in the state, but you go in the North Country, you go out in the, the White Mountains, like how many facilities even exist where this aging population is going to end up? So if we, for the financial aspect of it, also the just the facilities aspect of it is, is tremendous. Mm -hmm. You just can't, I don't think you can build your way out of this. We hear that about a lot of things and it's just not the, there's not one choice fits all. Um, you know, Bubbles could not spend the weekends with Andy, um, the person I met, if he was in a nursing home, perhaps, or another one, Maureen, could not have her cat or drive her van. Um, so there's lots of just what sound tiny things, lifestyle things that you would give up that would have a huge impact on their life. And it's a much cheaper, easier way to perform provide that care to make room in the nursing homes for people who prefer that or need that. It's more dynamic too. Like, like we talk about the, like, like COVID's a great, a great example of it where, yeah, we have this huge influx. If we just had countless ER beds just open and unused 99.9% .9 of the time, it's a huge cost suck that mm -hmm. the government would have to eat. And this is like a prime example where you're able to kind of meet in the middle a little bit and make it work and hopefully lawmakers can make it work for for that reason it's, anyways the government can be dynamic is, is always good because it doesn't happen very often 
We'll see. The budget, it seems to be on track. Advocates are very excited. Um, it's never done till it's done, but it seem, it's, it would be the biggest increase in Medicaid rates they've seen, and I don't even know how long. It's, it's significant. All right, let's stick with Medicaid, and expanded Medicaid is, being all, is just straight up being discussed also, and so long-term expansion of it. it. seems like we're not necessarily going to have a permanent expansion of it, but maybe seven years? What's the current state of this? I think it's seven, eight years. Um, I have one of those emails where someone said, what's going to happen over the weekend? And I laid out the course, and luckily I guessed right. So um, the House passed a two-year extension. The Senate wanted to make it a permanent extension. That Neither side liked that idea. They were totally opposed to each other's ideas, but they've reached a compromise now. So it looks like it would be you know, we talked about five, they got up to five, but about seven years. And the reason the Republicans primarily want to have some sunset on this is because they are distrustful of the federal government. Well, right now the federal government pays 90% of all the Medicaid expenses for the expanded Medicaid population. What if they drop that to 80 or to 70? It becomes a very different financial equation for the state, although the law is written to say if it goes below 90, we're out. Um, but there is a concern there. You know, there's talk right now of work requirements for other programs as part of the debt ceiling deal. They'd like to see work requirements here. I mean, that's been a contentious issue in the courts um, already. Some people would like to see drug testing. Um, they feel that there is a need to monitor people on assistance for that. So there's lots of reasons Republicans were never going to get to permanent extension, but they came up quite a bit from two years. Um, so that's what it looks like uh, for right now. And it, it has been credited with reducing the number of uninsured people. And you know, you work in the insurance department and your other life. And you know, when you start insuring more people, then hospitals aren't eating as much cost and then they're able to provide more care. Um, the Department of Corrections can get money for care, you know, under this program, and so they're able to benefit. Health outcomes are said to improve. So I think no one disagrees that it's a program that's working in many ways really well right now, but they want the Republicans really wanted to put some boundaries around it um, yeah. as we go forward. I think we've had it for about 14 years, and they want some more time to think about where we go next. It's kind of like the the uh, the equate it to what's going on with the deficit over in D.C. right now, where mm -hmm. th that little bit of leverage helps with negotiations to say, okay, these are kind of the guardrails rails we want on the program. And plus, you never know. I mean, mm -hmm. the perfect world for Democrats will move to a single-payer system down the road, and the Republicans want, or probably Democrats at that point, will want to be able to negotiate and figure out what the best path forward is. It, it needs to be, once again, we talked about dynamics with the previous situation, they want to be able to have a, a uh, have guardrails on it for in case down the road there needs to be changes because mm -hmm. I'd imagine also on the other side if um, Democrats get in power they're going to want to maybe make more extreme changes to have it encompass more people and if they uh, if it's like this permanent thing where there's no sunset it's harder to make negotiations happen mm -hmm. and there there's these dynamics at the lower level of the bill itself and then there's the dynamics of how does this fit in as a bargaining chip for the whole budget. 
Um, I, I'm not sure anyone other than the people in this newsroom are as fascinated by the negotiations at this point in the budget, but it's really interesting. Now, I think this was on the path to maybe becoming a bigger chip than it is going to be, um, but that we also see that in the end. You know, uh, the House and the Senate do not have the same budget, so they're going to have to come to terms on some things. And um, you hold this out there. This was a priority for the Senate. It was, came out of the Senate 24 nothing with no sunset. So it was a, a big priority for them. It reminds me of last budget when the Senate tucked into a House bill a lot of its priorities the House didn't like. And they chose a bill that gave the House a $35 million new parking garage. I mean, it's sort of brilliant. It's really brilliant. Um, so it's, there's, lots, there's lots of moving parts still, and it's, it's interesting to watch. But I think Medicaid expansion is safe at seven, eight years. Which is good. I mean, you're talking more than 60,000 granite staters are impacted mm -hmm. by it. And at the top of your article, you have this great pie chart uh, outlining the expansion enrollees by age group. And my God, it's fairly even split across all demographics. You're having mm -hmm. people ages 19 through 64 uh, ranging anywhere from 12,000 people for the upper upper age limit all the way to uh, 26,000 people in the 26 to 35 age range. So this is a large swath of, of demographics that are impacted by this. Mm -hmm. I have to give credit to the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute. Um, they're amazing. They came up with that. They also told me that when you look at Medicaid generally, so traditional Medicaid and expanded, 70% of that population is working. Um, so I, I think that the theory is in many ways, and the business community supports this, they feel like if we have healthier workers, we'll have someone, we'll have workers, they'll actually be able to come to work. Um, so it was a huge, it's a huge number of people who are working generally for these um, kind of assistance programs. There's some exemptions, you know, if you're pregnant or if you have a child, um, a young child at home and can't go to work or you have a disability or something like that. But a majority, 70% of people who get these benefits in the Medicaid insurance program are working. So the last five minutes here, I want to be sure to get to this other story that you wrote about uh, titled Mental Illness Doesn't Have to Overtake You. It's a... Uh, uh, just dive into it. it, it it's a super interesting story. It's, uh, this is an issue um, dear to my heart because I've shared my own story of struggling with mental illness and hospitalization. And I'm struck 10 years later, someone will say that story helped me. I do believe these stories matter. So um, the 10 community mental health centers partner with the airport to put in this big exhibition. So if you're in baggage claim at the airport, take a look at the windows and there's 10 giant posters of people with their picture telling about their experience with mental illness, but also their path toward treatment and really clarifying that mental illness is a piece of you. It is not you um, and how they manage that. So the, the um, airport said when we were approached, it was an easy yes. This is a place, you know, uh, 1.6 million people visit that baggage claim a year. They're all walks of life. Um, and so they really wanted it to, to be there. It's called um, Deconstructing Stigma. And it did launch in 2016 at the Boston airport. Um, and this is the first sort of permanent home for it in New Hampshire. Um, there's 10 stories, three of them from New Hampshire. Um, so definitely check it out. It's really compelling. 
think. Yeah, it goes to show the uniqueness of everyone's story when it comes to this. Like, there's so many different ways where, uh, where mental illness or different things may be affecting how your brain works. Mm -hmm. And it's always different, like person to person. There's no one story. And the one woman who spoke said, I'm a mom, I'm a professional, I have successful relationships, I volunteer, and I also have mental illness. And I really think that is the story, to think it is not even maybe the first part of yourself you mentioned, but it's one part. Another woman said, I, it's a piece of me too, just the way I have dyed blonde hair, my mental illness is one piece of me. Um, and so just their stories are inspiring. I think it can be scary to share these stories so publicly. There's increasing awareness of mental health, I think, especially during COVID. More and more people became, you know, intimately familiar with what mental illness can look like. Um, and I just think the world is getting better in hearing and telling those stories, but there's still work to be done. And I think that's what this is aimed at, is trying to uh, chip away at that. So definitely baggage claim, baggage claim three to three and five. It's over there. You can't miss it. It's really well done. Yeah, and as always, when we have these conversations, dial 988 for the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline or visit 988lifeline.org. Uh, super important. NAMI New Hampshire's out there. N-A-M-I-N-H.org. N-H-988.org also has many resources. I mean, since, since you've had that initial story go out, go out there, you still get referenced. Like, you feel like it's going, the conversation's going in the right direction with this sort of stuff? I think so. So I wrote that when I was at the Monitor. Felt very supported in the newsroom to do it. I left that career briefly to become a school counselor and it was an internship and they said, you know, don't tell anyone that you have mental illness because it will upset parents. And I thought, of all the places to have stigma, the school counseling office? Um, so that reminded me that it's not as safe as you might think for everyone. But I do think it's getting better. Um, now I think kids just talk about it like, I'm going to the gym, I'm going to the coffee shop, oh, I gotta go to my counselor today. I think it's really becoming normalized, which is good to see. Yeah, definitely. And take advantage of, if you're not sure about, talk about my day job earlier, I might as well throw it in there. We're just wrapping up Mental Health Awareness Month. So there's tons mm -hmm. of resources out there with that. And if you're not sure what, what, what's covered by your insurance, reach out to your insurance company mm -hmm. because it, it, there's tons of coverage when it comes to this. It's actually a requirement, especially in New Hampshire, that uh, there's parity with that. And the insurance, New Hampshire Insurance Department released a report on that, which shows that mm -hmm. there's been a lot of progress on it. Um, some people are happy necessarily with the progress, but it's going in a direction which is very helpful. But just call that number in the back of your insurance card. If you're on Medicaid, Medicare, there's resources there also. Please do reach out to HHS if you're on those programs and you're not sure mm -hmm. what to do. And 988, 988, 988. Always call that if you're not sure what to do. Right. Yeah. I used to, when, during my brief time as a school counselor, I would encourage kids to put it in, plug it into their phone so yeah. it is an auto-dial, and I would encourage that as well. You never know when you might need it for yourself or someone you care about, so put it right in there. All right. Senior reporter Anne-Marie Timmons over at the New Hampshire Bulletin, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it was great. Thank you. NHTalkRadio.com to get more from New Hampshire Headlines, which is the show I host here every Friday during WKXL in the morning. You can tune in WKXL in the morning, Monday through Friday from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. to hear the best of WKXL. And this show airs Fridays and 6 a.m. and is on demand on WKXL's YouTube channel as well as on our posted on our Facebook and Twitter if you're not sure when it comes out. I'm your host, AJ Kirsted. I'll talk to you, AJ Kirsted. I'll talk to you next week.